In this episode, I'm joined by Thomas Hubel, spiritual teacher, author, and international facilitator whose lifelong work integrates the core insights of mysticism with the discoveries of science. When Thomas's team contacted me to interview him about his new book, Healing Collective Trauma, I was very interested to read Thomas's thoughts on this emerging area. In this interview, Thomas shares his spiritual biography, including his time in Vienna, training as a medical doctor, and his four-year meditation retreat in the Czech Republic. Thomas goes into detail about his intellectual influences, his spiritual insights, and his 20 years of group facilitation work. Thomas also discusses the challenges and potential pitfalls of combining evidence-based scientific work in the field of trauma and psychology with the subjective authority of the mystic's personal experience. So without further ado, Thomas Hubel. Thomas Hubel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. And may I congratulate you on the publication of your new book, Healing Collective Trauma, a process for integrating our intergenerational and cultural wounds, which came out on the 1st of December last year. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm very happy with the release and uh, a lot of work, as you know, goes into such a book. It takes a long time to get it together. So I'm very happy it's out now. Yeah. I'd like to ask you in, in some detail about the book, and I'd also like to ask you a bit about your life, but I think perhaps first, why did you write this book? That's a good question. <laughs> and that's a good question. I think, um, why did I write the book? I think I wrote the book because, like, my own life journey and my... Um, what I learned in the last 20 years of my work, I believe when I, like in the early 2000s, when I um, started with my groups and after a few years, I saw like um, what I write in the book about is the collective trauma integration process, but it's more than that. It's kind of a description of, of something that I learned about through my groups in a much more vivid way which is that we are sitting in thousands of years of collective traumatization. Like trauma is not just a personal experience uh, and it often appears to us as a biographical experience. And because I saw the magnitude of what trauma really means and how it affects our societies and our lives, it's like a global pandemic that very few people heard about. And we heard about it a lot, of course, everybody knows about the Holocaust and knows about the genocide in Rwanda, about racism in the US, but the effect that it creates for us, how it literally affects us was so obvious to me at a certain point doing these groups. And I thought uh, this needs to be much more known. We need to talk about this more and get many more people involved in a kind of a conversation about it. I think that was the main reason for the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. One of the key points you make in the book, which is very fascinating, I'd like to ask you about a little bit later, is this idea of what we know about individual trauma can be thought of on a societal level. If a person is a, is a constellation of parts, then a society is a constellation of people in a way mm -hmm. and so a lot of you make some interesting uh, links there and uh, you, you also in the book produce quite a summary of trauma theorists like uh, Bessel van der Kolk and so on and also mm -hmm. I think another aspect of the book is your own spiritual uh, interpretation or theories that dovetail and that, that combination very very fascinating so all right first a little bit about your life when you were 19 studying medicine at the University of Vienna you felt a strong calling to have what you call silent time 
and began spending some time each day in meditation. You write, at 19 years old, I'd begun my own regular meditation practice. And in parallel to my coursework in medical studies, I began investigating many of the world's wisdom traditions. I took these habits with me when I entered medical school in Vienna, where I spent my days working shifts and my nights deep in study. And this culminated at the age of 26 in you leaving medical school and spending four years in the Czech Republic with your then wife, where you spent most of your time uh, meditating and in in fact encountered uh, some quite profound spiritual Mm -hmm. shifts. Uh, About that time, you said, then I was 26. I'd already come across a lot of things. I read Ken's books. That's Ken Wilbur. I practiced a lot of yoga and meditation, did all kinds of workshops. I needed something more intense, which is referring to your four-year retreat. And you've cited among some of your main inspirations at that time as being Ken Wilbur, who who you just mentioned in that quote, Ramana Maharshi, uh, Sri Aurobindo, I'm wondering if you could go into some detail about the books you're reading at that time and the workshops that you're attending. Yeah, as as you said already, I think one of the um, powerful um, inspirations for me, I think when I was 19, I started to read uh, Ken's books, Ken Wilber's books. And it was from the beginning, I thought, wow, that's amazing. And I also came across during my medical studies um, I think two, three years in, I came across Wilhelm Reich, and I and I thought, wow, why why did I never hear about this before? I mean, then I was already twenty twenty one or so something, and then and then I thought it's very interesting that like I need to go and find it out in a in a in a special way when what's written there felt so resonant to me. And so one of the things that I did, I, I did a lot of, lot of workshops and training programs in this body-centered psychotherapy um, domain. And I went, uh, when I was 19, I went for five years every week to do my own therapeutic journey and uh, had sessions every week. And uh, because I was totally into exploring, okay, if there is my interior world and as 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 you said i i also started spontaneously like before i even got to know yoga and all that i felt i need to be quiet every day in order to get to know like deeper places in myself and and that eventually culminated into a daily meditation practice and then i did all kinds of other workshops that felt resonant to me where I could explore myself in relation to others and then find out more about my inner journey. And, um, and, and I think through Ken, like Ken Bilbo's work is so amazing because it opens up doors into a whole encyclopedia of, of uh, references. And it was so interesting. I read so many books at that time. And then when I was 26, as you said, I, um, I felt no. We need. I need. I, I felt such a strong calling, and it was also that um, my. Um, I loved my medical studies. You know, it was it was a very hard decision for me to let go of of the scientific. I didn't know how long I'm gonna go to meditate when I started. I just felt I need to go, and it eventually became more than four years, and. Um, uh, but that journey was so crucial, and I and I learned so much in during those four years about different levels of consciousness or human consciousness, and different levels of meditation and refinement of meditation, and 
And to have a serious meditation practice, in my understanding, takes a lot of practice. And in order to open up different parts of our being to higher consciousness dimensions, um, that takes a lot of practice. And I was totally into this. I mean, I spent so much time meditating in these four years. But it was for me, because people around me said, Thomas, what are you doing? Why are you you're leaving everything? And you were so into medicine. And I really loved it. I was into emergency medicine. I was a paramedic for nine years. And I, I was, was a volunteer for the Red Cross. And I, and I loved it. But then I felt, no, I have to follow this. And, and, and I often said to people that didn't understand me at that time, I said, I don't know why I'm doing it, but I feel I'm studying something else. I am studying something that's important. And, and it was like that. And then as I came out of that retreat and, um, and, and then eventually started to, to start small workshops, but those workshops grew pretty quickly into large workshops. And um, yeah, so, and then the learning, my studying, like I had very profound experiences in these four years. But my study, like all my group work and all the, you know, one-on-one -on -one sessions and group sessions and large-scale collective trauma integration processes, it's kind of an ongoing studying and ongoing learning. And, I, and, and that's the beauty because it's so exciting because I all the time learn more about life and humanity and, and all of us and myself. So that's, that's a little bit the journey in a nutshell. Mm. That's very interesting. I have uh, several. Um, <laughs> this might ring a bell for you. Some of these. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, that's just I've got a whole bunch here. But I'm curious what it was about William Wright, and he—that's a very interesting man with a very interesting life story, uh, which I don't think we have time to go into the details here, unfortunately. But what was it about William Wright's material that so captivated you? And outside of the therapies that you were doing, such you know the weekly therapy journeys and so on, you were on. Uh, what were some of the other workshops that you were engaging in, exploring different parts of yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, with Wilhelm Reich, um, I felt like since Reich was also a student of Freud, um, I felt somebody that takes the, what spoke a lot to me is, is like coming from the psychoanalytic dimension and then including the, very important aspect of the body and the flow of energy through the body uh, seemed to me so crucial and very natural. So it's it's not a, because often we, even the, the term mental health is kind of misleading because it seems like, oh, that disorder is just in your mind, but that disorder is in the whole body. We just call it mental health and we call it, I don't know, any kind of diagnosis that we want to give it. But the it, it suggests that there's a separate mind. And then, of course, in my understanding today, I see very clearly that this, that this the fragmentation between physical, emotional, and mental experiences is, um, that fragmentation is um, a trauma symptom, first of all, but it's also the, the basis of the architecture of separation. So that's why we end up in a hyper-rational world that is part of a defense mechanism versus a brilliant mind that is a fantastic tool. And these two are very close and often go by unrecognized, like and, and, and undiscerned. And I think we need to, um, so that's why I felt that Wilhelm Reich had uh, many great 
approaches to certain things. Not always it worked out and maybe it also sometimes, you know, it's trial and error, but it spoke to me very deeply. And, and later on when I came across, you know, more to understand trauma and collective trauma myself. So then I, I'm, I could see why I felt attracted earlier on, because I feel the information that speaks to us in our life speaks to what we carry inside anyway, and it activates certain. So I felt Wilhelm Reich activated a part of myself. Um, as did, for example, various yoga traditions or the Kriya yoga tradition. I like Kriya yoga. And I also love the, like Aurobindo's description of, um, of the integral yoga and the higher levels of mind. That's very congruent with my own meditation experience. So how, and it also, um, by, like my, through my own meditation practice and through the work with thousands of people so far, like I, I saw, wow, the, the, the way we think about time is not anymore timely, which means that, that we see the future as a point in time ahead of us versus the future and emergent aspect of higher consciousness in the present moment. That's a huge difference. And that we see the past, we often call history the past versus integrated history are the structures of consciousness that are present, where we are present with each other today. So our integrated ancestry is speaking right now. And the unintegrated history is the past. And so, but our world is mainly built on the idea that tomorrow is the future. And I often say, no, tomorrow we can just recreate what we recreated already many times in the past. So that's not the future. That's a repetition of the past. It's a repetition compulsion of trauma. And that, um, I think misunderstanding of time can have severe consequences because it boxes our thinking into a framework that I believe is not true. And so that's just one element where like the meditation practice and, uh, and the trauma integration practice, I think can liberate the part of how we look at the world through which kind of framework we look at the world that might limit what we see, you know, how, how we see the world and how we can, meet challenges in the world yeah so that's Wilhelm Reich and the and the yeah and I did many workshops that are related to that kind of work and I also did um did I, I was always interested in in like uh how the refined perception of our nervous system and and how we can plug in like how we can train the subtle capacities, how we are perceptive in the subtle dimension. And so how to open those facilities of intuition and instant knowing in, in ourselves. So that's also a big part. And, but for me, that also opened up in a way through the meditation practice. I felt it, that's a capacity that started to grow just through the, through the regular practice and the intense practice. Um, many of those things just, opened up uh, gradually. You've talked and written about how um, work done on oneself or in a group collective work can uh, have an effect on history in the future and so on. To quote you, God inserted into creation after some time grace. What is grace? Grace means that the future has the power to rewrite the past. 
through our consciousness work, we have the power to literally rewrite history. So when you say the uh, work we might do can literally rewrite history, well, how, how are you defining history in that sense? Yeah, yeah. So as I said before, the, because sometimes the notion of time that we hold at the moment, I think is inaccurate. Um, I mean, we need a, a certain framework of time, which is also rhythm, which is day and night and, and uh, you know, the flow of, of, of functionality of our daily life. When I play, uh, buy a plane ticket or there were times when we bought plane tickets, now we don't, but we, how we organize our day. And the, but on a deeper level, I, I saw through also through the ancestral trauma work, I saw, wow. There is a beautiful saying in the in the Jewish mysticism where it says, and in the time of the great revelation, the wait, there's a siren in the In the time of the great revelation, there the fathers will turn to the sons and the sons will turn to their fathers. And or the mothers to the daughters. It's like the the, the one generation turns to it, but what it means is that we see. And seeing is presence. Presence and seeing is the same. And presence and seeing and clarity is also the same. So when, when we see each other, then the former generation and this generation are in a state of presence together, which means they are now. So the integrated ancestry is an energy flow and structures of consciousness that is active right now and gives me a, a sense of presence with you. My unintegrated history or ancestry or experiences in the collective are chunks of information that is past and, and with that it's split off and it's what in the Eastern traditions we call karma, like postponed experience. And when, when we talk about history, integrated history is presence, but unintegrated history is the past. So the trauma that my parents, my grandparents went through, my grandparents in the Second World War, that if it's not integrated, it will have an effect in my body, in my emotions, in my thinking, in my way to relate to the world and how I am able to perceive the world. So I often say when we do um, trauma integration work, we, we heal our own biographical uh, trauma story, history. And so we integrate the energy that couldn't be integrated. So integration is always to become unified and rise up to a higher synergy, to a higher state of integration. So that always means post-traumatic learning. Every trauma that's being integrated creates a learning for the individual or the culture. And when we, when we feel into a trauma, let's say at age five, something happened to a person, the trauma is not the symptoms that come up for the grown-up person. It's a storage of information in the nervous system at a specific location. And we can access that location in order to heal and integrate the trauma. But the same is true that today, my grandparents' traumatization is part of my nervous system. 
because we often think the nervous system is too individual, I believe. It's like you as a person, but your nervous system is hundreds of thousands of years old. You know, we didn't invent the nervous system. We have been born into one that, that has been given to us by the genetic memory of, of like such a long period of life. And so I'm, I'm sitting in a nervous system. My personality is wired in that nervous system, but also my, my collective history is wired in that nervous system. And, and that's why when we do trauma work, there's always a ripple effect back in what we call back in time. So it integrates that split of energy of the past. And it also opens up possibilities for me in the future. So it makes me more engaged, more creative, more present, and also more innovative in the way I live my life today. And that's why I say integrating the past is integrating something that was split off in order to make now more full, like more rich. Uh, and I think that's a basic principle of trauma work, but it literally also we are affecting the past because the question is, what did the, our ancestors turn to in their darkest moments? And the same is also true for us. Is the higher integrated future of us affecting us now while we are having this conversation? So the how the future and the past influence this conversation is very interesting because often we think the future is something that's separate from now and i don't think it's separate it's interdependent so you said that initially you said elsewhere that initially you wanted to go to india to a tibetan monastery that was your initial idea what was the inspiration behind this idea to go to a tibetan monastery in particular of course yeah. eventually you, you went to the czech republic but why a tibetan monastery you haven't mentioned um to Buddhism yet, or you you use words like bodhisattva vow and so on in the book. So, of course, you're you're well informed about it, but you haven't mentioned it yet as a key influence. So, why a Tibetan monastery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tibetan monastery because um, I do. Let's say at that time, or let's start differently. In my own being, I have simply like a stronger resonance with some traditions. I mean, I have a, a basically a very strong tradition uh, in a resonance with the mystical core of any tradition, because as I explored that deeper, I feel that if, if I looked into the core principles of yoga or the core principles of Judaism, or the core principles of Tibetan Buddhism. So there is a whole cultural framework around it, of course, but the the essence is very similar. And and I loved to explore that that kind of mystical flame, as I call it, in the tradition, not necessarily the religious uh, body around it, but the the, the essential teachings. And, And as you know, I'm sitting right now in Israel. So on the one hand, uh, I feel a very deep closeness um, to the Jewish tradition. And um, 
and I love the the ancient the ancient teachings of the Jewish tradition. At the same time, I feel a similar closeness to the Tibetan tradition. And at that time, I I simply felt I need like an intense practice container for what I felt inside. So, and since I love the Tibetan tradition, I thought I'll go to simply a, a Tibetan monastery and study there and and uh, live there for some time. Um, and then there is a third tradition that I'm deeply resonant with is the Taoism. Because first of all, I find the Tao Te Ching a fantastic uh, concentration of so many wisdom principles. Like it's the concentrated liquid of uh, a lot of life wisdom. And as many sacred texts contain in a way the reader already and all the readers already, and that's fascinating because we are very, like sacred texts are different than regular writings. And, um, and I find in these three traditions, that's, that's, those are the traditions that I uh, felt deeply resonant with and uh, some, of, some of the work I deeply explored myself. And <clears throat> yeah, so that's why at that time I wanted to go, but I felt also it, it gives me maybe an environment that has the intensity that I was looking for. Um, and I, and it felt very close to my heart. Mm. Buddhism, of course, a broad, a very broad tradition with many aspects and also many living adepts, which is not so guaranteed in some of the mystical traditions. Some uh, adepts are easier to find than others, should we say. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, what it was, if there was anything in particular about Tibetan Buddhism that really resonated with you, uh, perhaps theoretically or practice wise or aesthetically, and if you ever encountered in your journeys and travels any adepts of that tradition who particularly impressed you? Yeah, I didn't since since I I, I went to India, I think three, four times, and then I went multiple times to Nepal. Um, but since I didn't go to study, so I didn't meet the the real mystics of the tradition more than uh, just through listening to lectures and, and listening, you know, studying the lectures that I could have access to. But there is like, so that's on the outer world, but on the inner world, like where, where we connect to like a whole field of consciousness there, it's different. They're there to be connected to, um, the power of a tradition and also the mystical tradition and also to be connected to the, what I would call some kind of remembrance of resonances in, in our own field. There, there, there's a, I feel a different connection. And I had a similar feeling also when I came the first time to Jerusalem, that I walked through the city and I could feel myself walking in, like there are so many time zones in that, in that place. And I felt a different, uh, like a, it's different in the quality, but a similar closeness um, with the, also with that field of information that that is is here. And so yes, so I, I can. It's more like on the inner levels, but I never studied with a with a Tibetan teacher um, directly. Hmm. That's that's very interesting. And one of the aspects of your book that I think is is quite unusual is you do blend very often side by side quite straight trauma therapy with 
these more, as you call them, universal laws, you know, this sort of mystical dimension. I'm very curious about that. When you talk about this other dimension, you also mention in the book, you use the word Akashic, as in Akashic records, this idea of a, a kind of collective memory. It's almost Jungian, some of the ways in which you use that idea in the book. And one also might wonder about things like past lives and so on, although perhaps you've already hinted at your interpretation of this when you discussed the nature of time, as you see it earlier. I'm wondering if you could perhaps talk about how you began to access some of these dimensions. You've talked about your four-year retreat being a key part where you began to unlock uh, aspects, as you say, of higher aspects of being. It seems more subtle realms, uh, as you've described, or almost psychic, some people might say, Uh, almost, some might say, new age, that that kind of direction. So I'm curious how it was that you began to experience those sorts of realms. Um, As I said before, like through contemplative and meditative practices, I think at the beginning it starts with um, coming to a different state of internal regulation of the nervous system. And then we learn to, to deepen that state so that we put ourselves into it's on the one hand like in neuroscience terms we could say we put ourselves into a different brainwave state but we could also say we put ourselves into a much deeper state of presence and the more we sink into that presence we are on the one hand it looks like we're slowing down like the flow of reality. And when you slow it down, it's like you you open up an image on your tablet or your phone. So you see the, the image in a much higher resolution. And, and I believe presence is like inherently connected to a much higher resolution of life. So when the movie is just in a regular speed, you see a film, but when you stop frame by frame, when you stop the movie, you see many more details because it seems like you have more time. And in the mystical traditions, we call like the the Buddhist notion of emptiness is not a kind of emptiness that we say, if I put everything that's in this room outside, the room is empty. Spiritual emptiness is that everything is in here, and that's why it looks like empty. If everything is here, nothing can be seen. That's like emptiness in the in the mystical sense. And when we and then when something arises, like a, a, a the, the the will of life of one lifetime. We, need, we make a lot of not me in order to be defined as a me. So if I can see something, a lot of things will not be seen. And the whole spiritual journey is about opening up these channels and identification with a separate sense of self, which I think trauma work adds a lot. And collective trauma work is actually at the architecture, at the base of separation. So through trauma work, we loosen up thousands of years of felt separation in order to touch on some of the mystical states. 
that the, some of the, the high mystics talked about, uh, states of unification. That's not just a high-end state. That's also a state where a lot of the separation has been integrated and unified. And um, so when through the meditation time I had, like by looking at life through the this kind of higher resolution, the, the field of information that is omnipresent here it becomes more accessible because I'm in an inner state that has, has access to that field. In a faster state, it seems like those fields are hidden. That's why some people say, yeah, the mystical teachings are hidden. Yeah, they're only hidden because we are not in the in the internal state that can reveal them. They're not hidden by somebody vicious or by the great villain of, of the universe. They, they are hidden because we are unable to speak the language of that dimension of life. And, um, and that's why, as you said, I, I find it very fascinating that I believe the voice of contemporary science and the voice of the mystical science that's also what I did in the book. I allowed these two voices to have a dialogue because I think within that dialogue, there are lots of revelations. And so that we learn that thousands of years of unrestored human pain create a life of separation that we took as normal. We said, okay, that's how life is. And I would say, no, that's not how life is. That's how life is when it's hurt. And when life is partly hurt, then it creates a lot of symptoms. So the, the invisible trauma field is also part of that information field that you spoke about. And, and the more we, that's what I also wrote in the, in, the, in, chapter, in the chapter about the facilitators, I think one, one capacity that we need to have in order to do trauma work or collective trauma work is to work on our inner state of presencing and also our inner state of perception. So how perceptive we are is crucial because when we sit with one person, when we sit with a group or when we tune in with the um, collective trauma of a nation, we are talking about information that is stored in the collective unconscious. It's like um, maybe the last thing and then for that answer is like, if you say that trauma is, you see on the TV, a crazy war scene, you take your remote control and you mute it. And so it's still playing, but it's without sound. So when I'm in a, in a traumatized moment, life is still around, but I'm, I'm, I feel like a bit ghosty, disembodied, uh, like two-dimensional, I'm, I'm, I'm in a shock state. And then we take the TV screen and we throw it into the ocean. And slowly, and this, the scene is still playing, the movie is still on, and it, it drops slowly into the darkness of the ocean. So when we take an event like a Holocaust, deep down on the collective consciousness ocean, there are many TVs still playing, scenes of concentration camps and war scenes and stuff. But here, where we are, it doesn't appear, but it's here in the room. Mm. 
And, and I think that, that access to that information and why often we don't have access to that information because it's turned unconscious and it's resting down in the darkness. <laughs> Many millions of TVs are still playing those things. That's, I believe, what we don't see here because our perception has no access to that usually. Uh, but that's what that pain really means. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting as you talk, you weave in sort of multiple uh, different different levels at once. You, you talk sometimes from a psychological perspective, and then perhaps mid-sentence will switch to a metaphorical or a spiritual perspective, talking about, you know, TV screens in the dark. That's almost Jungian collective unconscious idea. And the, you know, epigenetics, of course, more kind of um, biological and neurobiological model and so on. And then these other spiritual ideas. And of course, these these different disciplines have quite different standards of evidence, claim, and truth. So I'm wondering why you weave them together like that. Is there a danger of giving some of the, should we say, spiritual language or spiritual ideas the same equivalency, let's say, of verification by, say, scientific means, as we might find in some of the more scientific literature? Because as I'm tracking there what you're saying, there's science, there's psychology, there's spiritualist speculation even the you know the use of the buddhist notion of the word emptiness within buddhism that's a very broad philosophical um debate there isn't really a buddhist notion of emptiness as you, as you know of course so is there a danger do you think of creating confusion by by speaking so many levels one after the other and interlacing them like that or why do you do that yeah like we need to like to be precise when we say when we discuss epigenetics, we need to discuss epigenetics in the framework of biology or genetics or like the genetic sciences. And that there is a very science-based or evidence-based process of unfolding or knowledge uh, uh, acquisition. And that's true when we speak within that framework, we need to be precise with the, the rules of the framework, same as psychology or neuroscience. At the same time, if we just stay in the silos of those, of those disciplines, we might miss the interdisciplinary fabric that they are part of because they are not separate. We can look at them separately. We can look at the, the rules. So I think if we, if we looked at, um, or if you are looking at, for example, the mice experiment of uh, Isabel Manzui that shows the epigenetic changes of, of kind of childhood traumatization of young mice. Um, in that sense, it's true. We need to look at the evidence in the framework of an evidence-based evaluation. And But at the same time, I believe we also run into the danger that we separate certain aspects of life into silos, and then we are missing the, the fabric that connects them, because a human being is not just epigenetics, because my epigenetics are being influenced by our conversation right now. So would I separate my relation to you from my epigenetics? No, so the spiritual dimension looks at the, as Tichnathan says, the, the dimension of interbeing. So how is my epigenetic landscape and your epigenetic landscape now in relation or in a state of interbeing? 
and how do we influence each other and i think if we if we don't manipulate the the science because we are changing the evidence based findings and the context then we can weave or or at least open up a conversation how they are related so we are talking about the science in a way of relating and relating those different aspects back into like one space in which they can speak to each other and that's what i also for example do with our collective trauma online summit so there are 50 speakers that are coming from different various disciplines and we have conversations with all of them given their background if they're psychologists or doctors or i don't know social um justice lawyers and then we we look at how those voices communicate within a space and that's why i'm looking also a lot for this kind of interdisciplinary dialogue but i think spirituality needs to be part of it it cannot be excluded because it's such an essential part of our being and maybe it also has a kind of the function of a fabric uh that that hosts various parts of ourselves and our science science traditions i see so in a certain sense the spiritual view are you saying you see it as a sort of uh, meta view or a kind of overarching view that might provide a way of unifying various different disciplines such as science for example because there are others um, who might consider let's say science to be the overarching view that could perhaps explain the divergent opinions within the different spiritual traditions for example it could be flipped that way also i think both is true i think they are like they are not separable like that's what i meant before like they are interdependent wholes so science and mystical science they belong to each other so spirituality will be represented in neuroscience for example or in psychology or somewhere and and the other way around but the interesting aspect is what's the dialogue what's the movement between them so that there is not one superior version but there there is the expression of interdependence yes and i think relation or communication is in a way the expression of that interdependence right that's true i see it the same way yeah. mm. and interesting let me uh, continue to ask you a bit about this you know i mentioned in your book that of course you present your four-part process for working with collective trauma that you've developed over these 20 years of, of running workshops with uh, very interesting, as you mentioned before, uh, and as you describe in the book in quite a lot of detail, one of the real crucibles for that, one of the real learning for that was the working with in Germany, group memories of the Holocaust coming up and spreading through a group of people who weren't even uh, often alive at the time of those events. Those sorts of things that you were having in your encounter group uh, meetings, eventually over time, you developed this four-part CTIP process. And you also talk about trauma, and there's, you mentioned a bit of shadow work and some spiral dynamics also in there. And I meant, as I mentioned before, you also make quite a lot of spiritual claims about the nature of reality and so on. So, for example, you write, We are each a pulsing fiber optic cable alive in a matrix of light. The source of this light, whatever we call it, source energy, life seed, the divine, touches us from the authentic future. It's an evolutionary intelligence that seeks to download itself into and through us from this conscious ever-emergent wellspring. We're offered the full accumulated treasure of human life. It exists within us as an electricity that rushes upward vertically along every familial thread and arcs out horizontally along the fibers of our nervous systems. 
connecting each to the other and animating the full current of humanity in vibrating unison. The divine human matrix carries the encoded story of our race back to its very genesis. All those today have been entrusted to hold this living record and chosen by evolution to update and renew it to a new tomorrow. When a human incarnates, a stream of light enters into and travels upward along millennia of spiraling DNA and accumulated genetic histories. Pushing through thousands of years of karmic substrate, a single human soul emerges into a world weighed down by ancient, modern, and postmodern bands of tribal pain and cultural trauma. Its light surfaces finally at the conception and crown of a single bawling infant. Each child is new and innocent and perfect, but has entered an incomprehensible story, one requiring great strength of spirit. It seems in that passage you're, you're talking about DNA, talking about evolution, but then you're also talking about divine light, source energy, incarnation, this idea of intentionality behind being gifted with certain things. Other places you've written about people being gifted with the sort of circumstances of their life, people with sensitive nervous systems, for instance, is a gift that's needed for their incarnation. This is a sense of there's a gifting happening. Almost every sentence has the psychological, the scientific, in an evolutionary biology sense, and the spiritual woven together. And at the end, the uh, summary, as you've, as you've said, your summary is, a, is of a spiritual nature. So, you know, one thing that did strike me as I read the book is the, if one pays close attention, one can, one can see, I think, that you're, what you've said is you're attempting to create a dialogue between these different elements that say evolutionary biology, the psychological and, and the spiritual. Well, I suppose I could return to my previous question. Is, is there a danger of, of muddling them or of, of creating a false equivalency. And doesn't evolution sound a bit like depth psychology? Doesn't, doesn't depth psychology remind us a little bit of spirituality? You know, something like this. And there can be uh, perhaps some problems there. Another related problem, I think, or, or that's not a problem, a related um, something else that struck me, and I'm wondering what the thinking was behind this. You very, quite rigorously cite all the trauma work. You are careful to describe the key thinkers, and you provide lots of citations for their books. But as far as I could see, you don't cite any sources for the spiritual side, the spiritual theme. Uh, you've got two, two citations for Lao Tse, and that's related to your appendix, when you give some exercises about connecting with the inner light. And in the book, you don't, I don't think, refer to any spiritual traditions, even specifically, you've done so here in this interview. You, you use words like Qi and Bodhisattva and, like we said, Akasha, and uh, you talk about the uh, Sarira, Triya, and so on. Why, I'm curious, did you choose to cite the trauma so thoroughly, but give no citations or references in terms of the lineages of thought for the spiritual side yeah i think that um that uh, since like as you said i'm i'm representing also through my own journey like a kind of a mystical path that um that is also strongly represented in the way I do the work with clients or groups or so that there are certain mystical principles that are very, that kind of opened up in myself naturally through my practice. And so what I describe in the book is um, not derived from multiple traditions or books that I read about it. it. It's coming out of my 
whatever direct experience. And I'm speaking in the book only about uh, the, when you ask me about the spiritual principles, I am speaking only about the things that I experience in the process work myself. I'm not talking about things that I read somewhere, but I'm, um, I'm referring to, let's say, the energetic knowledge that I practice and use every day in the work on trauma or collective trauma. And that's why maybe that's why what you correctly refer to, there are no citations, because that is not um, knowledge that I read about. That's something that opened up within myself. And that's also how I relate to people. And also that's how what I teach about human process work. So how we use our nervous system as a as a modeling capacity for another nervous system like when when we create relational resonance and we we can create in ourselves an environment that is very conducive for another person to slowly open up content trauma content into relation in a safe way and that we can we can look at trauma i cited the scientific because there's a lot of knowledge about science that many people you know brought together but the the all the mystical principles that i describe in the book are based on my own experience that's my my direct experience of the work with people, the human practices that, that I also teach is what I do myself and what I model a lot in all our groups and programs in front of many, many people. When somebody asks a question or brings in a topic and we work on it together, what I, how we go through the process is exactly what I describe in the book. So basically, there, it's not something that I, um, it's not knowledge that I read about, and that's why I need to quote the but it's something that is part of my daily experience and um and that's maybe why you picked up on that that there are no uh, citations in the book yeah that's right yeah so the source of authority for the trauma work is the science which i think strengthens those sections a lot the source of authority in terms of the spiritual side is your own your own authority your own insight as an individual Right. And there are references then that are very like resonant with, as I said before, like when I, when I look at Ken Wilber's work, there are many, there are many aspects that he describes in, in the various levels of consciousness that I can relate my experience to. Or if I read uh, Aurobindo's work with the higher levels of consciousness and so, so, or, or the yoga practice, in, in the, the internal anatomy or, or Chinese medicine, you know, when we talk about qi and vitality and life energy, yes. So there I can make a lot of references and I can also be in, as I am also in dialogue with people that are coming from those various fields. So it's not an isolated authority. That's important to say, like I'm looking a lot for the dialogue with many people to open that up as a, as an invitation to be in dialogue also with people from various traditions or various scientific backgrounds. Okay, so you mean you're, you're seasoning your spiritual information with, that you've had revealed to you with dialogue with scientists? 
scientists, not but not also right. also people from spiritual traditions. Yeah, right. None of which you cite, though. None of whom you cite. No, no, because that's not the source of my my the, the information that I quote, like that I write about in the book. So it's not the quoting of people's information. Mm. Okay. Something I wondered about that you're mentioning there about the way you train facilitators and and so on, or the way you, you teach facilitation, perhaps a better way of saying it. You're right about your facilitators. The most important thing of these uh, things that they ought to be able to do is include the capacity to do the following. Rest in and return to witness consciousness. Be wholly present with the intense and dynamic energies of a large group, rather than becoming activated or triggered by those energies due to one's own unhealed content. Make energetic connections and integrate instincts and intuitions with cognitions. Hold a group's subtle field in one's awareness, whatever the scale, and accurately read such a field. Perceive the mass energy waveforms of a group field, as well as wisely induce and gently direct those waves in search of the group process, and with the care of all in mind. Connect to the future light, in order to download its organizing intelligence into the past, so that it may heal, clarify, and release our individual and collective potential. And you also write that with healing practice, we can learn to zoom in and feel deeply into or align with any of the holographic coordinates of the energetic nervous system in both ourselves and others. By developing this skill, we can learn to use our own nervous system to attune in relation to that of another. This allows us to access impressions or emotional sensations relating to experiences that occurred at specific points in space and time. This subtle competency grows in clarity as we learn to connect through the receiver of our own nervous system, establishing a data connection through deeper precision. By attuning to another person in this way, always with permission, we can simply feel within our own system the approximate age or stage in life at which painful experience or trauma occurred. This is the cosmic address. So the final uh, point, I think, before I ask, uh, your four-part group process involves getting people together, um, engaging in certain uh, attunement-building exercises, mirroring, mirror-moving and so on, talk process, etc., and then opening, dropping in a topic like the Holocaust and opening up, opening up the group uh, for people to then say what they like. And then you describe this pattern that uh, you've observed over the over the 20 years of how it tends to go. First of all, there's denial, and then someone says something, and then there's an out, a total outpouring of everyone then talking about it. And then it, you have to be careful there to tie it up in a certain way, and the, usually the group will do that organically and start to reflect and sort of look ahead and move on. You've got to sort of shepherd that process. Very, very amazing that you've witnessed that over those, you know, observed that over the years of working with these groups. So I'm curious, on the one hand, that process could be seen as a a psychological intervention, a, the sort of thing for human potential movement, kind of group therapy process structure, um, re- reminiscent in some ways of, uh, for instance, Paul Lowe, who was an influence or, or a figure in your, in your history, famous for doing that sort of a group process, similar, not the same structure, that's your, your process, but... Uh, in the Osho days and, and so on and beyond. One could see it in, as, as a sort of psychological intervention, and then one can back that up with the trauma literature. Why is the spiritual aspect necessary for that kind of a group process, other than it being how you experience what you're doing? Why is it necessary to describe it yeah, with the additional spiritual part? Could you have, in other words, have written a book where you talked about the trauma therapy, you presented your four-part model, uh, and left it at that. Do we need to talk about you know divine seeds and connecting to the light and yeah. channeling and so on? What what's the what's the necessity of that? Is there a danger of mixing the scientific with its verifications, the, the psychological with its its means of assessment, and your own mystical experience? Why is that done like that? 
Yeah, I think, um, first of all, when we, when we talk about spiritual, I think it's, it's good to look at what we, how we define spiritual. I think, and that's from my perspective, and that's why I wrote a book that I wrote, is that there is kind of a phobia sometimes in the in the current uh, marketplace in the current world to engage with mystical or spiritual aspects because at first it might look like it's not evidence based it's not so easily to follow or to put into clear descriptions so yes i agree so that that's that's there but you know, then we we found that uh, scientifically, it's it's at least mindfulness has become a a an evidence based uh, understanding that what mystical traditions say for thousands of years that meditation and presence and deeper states of presence are simply very beneficial needed to be confirmed by neuroscience in order to find an agreement that that's something that we can that is evidence-based. And, and I believe we are living in a time where we transcended in a way in our current societies and also in the scientific mindset, we transcended in a way the shadow side of religion, but we also tried to create a more sterile environment when it's about the, because the spirituality is on the one hand different states and meditative states and mindfulness that we can measure, but it also has a dimension of higher aspects of consciousness that are not easily measurable. And in the spiritual, in the mystical traditions, there are descriptions of kind of ethical ways of walking in life that are key elements to find orientation in the way we live ethically together as human beings. And so if there was a big spiritual collective trauma that has been, uh, that has happened through kind of collective movements or religious movements that enforced their power through the religious mindset, which created a lot of, I think, trauma and the shadow side of, of that. But on the other hand, when we exclude that dimension as not evidence-based, we are missing a very deep internal referencing and kind of ethical way of walking. And so one aspect of, of every serious spiritual tradition is kind of an ethical code of, or an ethical alignment that is is speaking to the way of, of how we live as a human being in daily life in what's right relation and how we respect each other's dignity, how we train compassion and, and many other things. And, and so we, the reason why I could have written the book without the whole spiritual dimension, just based on the trauma science and make a collection of all of that. But first of all, that's not authentic to me. And secondly, I believe that the dimension of the mystical voice needs to be reintroduced into the discourse in a, in a new way. And, and it, we need to heal the trauma that happened, but also listen to the thousands of years of introspection and uh, 
experimental introspection that is also a, a long chain of, um, that's also a tradition that is based on something. It's not just anything can happen. And, um, and so I believe to spark the dialogue, even if at the beginning it brings up a lot of questions, also a lot of evidence questions, I think is a good thing because I'm missing that voice in sometimes in our in our society as an important voice too, not as the voice, but as part of that that holistic dialogue. And and I see this also as part of my own journey, how to combine the scientific voice and the mystical voice and have them have a dialogue. And then we see what we find out. But I would love to to have that dialogue. And as I said, um the the spiritual aspects that I described in the book are, as you said, are based on my own experience and are based on on the way I teach process facilitation and how we use things like uh, presencing. Or as Otto Sharma also talks about the theory U and the, the innovation capacity, how we connect to to real innovation and how we what's vertical literacy. So I believe all of those things are important. Um, and that's why I, I wrote it that way. Yes. Mm, yeah. I think it's a shame that the, I mean, it is, a, it is a fascinating dialogue. You're, as a mystic, your mystic voice, I mean, not the mystic voice, but your mystic voice would be a way of saying it. Um, what, you know, you've come to find through your spiritual practice, very potent stuff, amazing. What you've discovered doing psychological working in group meetings and the the trauma uh, science it is that is an interesting dialogue it's a shame i think that the spiritual was not um framed more clearly as being your if you want direct spiritual insights which would i think contextualize it somewhat differently from 20 years of of working with people and so on i think it's in danger maybe of undermining some of the insights that you have about collective trauma because of the authority issue of of the spiritual things that are presented as fact in the book, really, um, or as statements of fact, spiritual fact, but still there as statements of fact. But, but you know, but that's just perhaps my reading. But one of the ways of, of course, evaluating the efficacy of a, an intervention like CTIP is in terms of its outcomes. And you write actually about that here. The collective trauma process isn't a clean, linear procedure with a direct programmable outcome. To understand it, we can organize it into stages and waves, but it isn't a machine into which X input offers Y outcome. The CTIP is a complex system. The components that enter into it, beginning long before we show up to the process, are variable and vast. It takes group intelligence and dedication and synergy for the process to work. And the outcome of the process, whether it's conducted well or poorly, will be expressed exponentially at the system scale. It isn't just the participants who experience the effects, but the families, communities and cultures they interact with going forward. The CTIP is acupuncture for the collective body. The most humbling gift of the work is the recognition that afterwards there is a felt vibrational upgrade wherever it occurred. When CTIP is healing is repeated in a particular city, region or country, many feel that the energetic composition of the society begins to shift. Blocked evolutionary energies are released, and innovation can surge. Over time, a problematic zone may become prosperous and thriving. Perhaps this sounds outlandish, yet I and many others have observed these radical shifts again and again. And you mentioned there a felt vibrational upgrade. 
as a consequence of the seat of the of the group process um blocking of energies and an increase in prosperity in in areas and you, in, which you describe as radical shift but you don't give any specific examples or an, anecdotal examples for example it seems an important point to leave unsubstantiated the outcomes of of the process could could you perhaps say something about why outcomes weren't included and perhaps some of the examples of the, of the of the things you've noticed as an outcome yeah because we are for example at the moment we are because the as you said before like as i wrote at the beginning that the the outcome in a complex system is not easy to measure so the impact of like multiple ctips for example on berlin or a place where we did it more often is not so easy to measure so what we we are now in the phase of that we created we created four years ago um a non-profit organization is called the pocket project and we are now working on 23 different labs which are groups that are exploring collective trauma in different areas of the world and and we created now a structure where we have a, a very tight kind of questionnaire scientific evaluation of participants of the facilitators of the whole uh, organization we created like a meta learning platform and so we are we are trying now to to look at some more evidence-based data that we collect but it takes us some time to set up a structure to do that so um and the other the other part is that in the in the academy of inner science our kind of teaching um platform we we developed um like a phd program and an ma program and there are currently some students that are writing the phd on collective trauma and they're using the data so we are looking now to feed that in what we saw through and what we felt through the experiences of the ctips we are looking now how to create a scientific uh, environment and i also had once um a conversation with um, Otto Schammer, like how we, because he is also very interested in system sensing and awareness-based system transformation, and and we we talked about the difficulty to find like methods how to create evidence-based structures that we can show those changes that might be experienced by some people or groups of people, but they are hard to put in words but what i what we so that's so we don't have the references yet because there are no publications about this there is nothing that we can reference because we are i think we are developing in a way also a new field at the moment but what we see is that through the unblocking of of that material in and and i want to say something because you mentioned before encounter groups I want also to say that what what we are doing is not encounter work just to be precise because we are not um we are not triggering the the trauma content in the group through an active trigger so we are not going and uh creating more confrontational uh challenges for people to to touch on on deeper emotional release 
And we are also not looking for a kind of emotional catharsis or a strong expression. So it's not that we are we are creating these groups to bring this stuff onto the surface. It's more that we are looking, okay, what's actually the collective coherence that we can build in order to create enough safety in the group that certain content is surfacing naturally. And, and that's a, I just want to be precise because I'm also very critical with some of the encounter work that pushes information into the awareness of people and where we create confrontational uh, situations to, to trigger those. And I want to just differentiate that that's not what, first of all, not what I believe in uh, process-wise. And, and uh, secondly, that, that I think sometimes it's counterproductive to the trauma integration. So we are looking at the, how the relational container can be safe enough that in the nervous system, naturally certain content is being liberated by itself without external triggers or force. Um, and so just, I wanted to mention this uh, to, to be precise because you mentioned that before. And the, the other thing is that, the, that we can see in, in um, people that came to multiple CTIPs, we could see the decrease in their own experience of the trigger and the amount of information that came up and how people can stay more connected to themselves, even if we deal with very painful past, like Second World War or racism or whatever we are looking at. And, and how this inner state of integration grows and how that, that develops a natural, like a different sense of flow in their life and also like a different flow in, in the way their expression and participation in, in the world is changing. And so how that creates an upgrade also in everybody's vitality engagement, also prosperity and, um, and and the way we influence uh, culture, and that it's that it's of course a process that it's not just one to hundred, but we see a, a continuous upgrade, and also how people more and more actually feel motivated to engage in society and in the societal process, but from a more regulated place, and that usually creates. Uh, environments that are more stable and more creative, co-creative, fertile, and also support new structures in society to grow. So even if we go, there's some kind of healing phase, and then and then it opens up to kind of a new state of living in a way, where the stagnation that was there before turns into like more aliveness and participation. And that usually it comes with a big change or some kind of gradual change in people's lives. In the description of the process, you know, you're talking about encounter groups there. You, you do mention that once enough presence and coherence has been established, we can invite the topic and purpose of our gathering into the room. But you're clarifying now that you don't bring, you wouldn't invite the topic and purpose of the gathering into the room by, say, mentioning the Holocaust, for example. Yeah, I would not do that. Like encounter groups often have that that element of we are, we are 
in a way triggering people through psychodrama for instance yeah yeah through all kinds of methods in order to touch deeper emotions and we are not so much interested in the emotional release although that happened in the processes that i saw right it came up for many people but that's not our main purpose and we are always looking how to regulate that enough so that it's not getting too strong so there are ways how to slow down processes that we can digest what comes up otherwise it it just creates more activation for people and that's that's kind of a different way of working yeah, that's very interesting that you should point to that because there are uh, trends which you're criticizing here where trauma or reactivity is stirred up for the feeling of an emotional catharsis and that's seen to be intrinsically a good thing regardless of its outcomes um, uh, further down the line, which is why I brought up the outcomes that, you know, as an important part, a process can appear to be meaningful and to feel good in the moment. There can be a, you know, I mean, use the word felt vibrational change, but without... Uh, close attention to the outcomes beyond the container. It can be the case, as you said, in encounter groups and in any process in which the outcomes aren't tracked in some way. It can be either neutral or damaging, perhaps, or good, but we just don't know unless we track it. And I think it seems an important next step. You know, this book, in a certain sense, seems a hypothesis of this is um, something you've got, your process, there's the trauma work, your own spiritual, if you want, revelations. For that process to carry more weight, there, there need to be something more than a felt vibrational change or things seem lighter or something like that. So it's good to know that you're trying to figure out how you might verify the efficacy of these ideas. Mm. Yeah, that's what I said before. I mean, there are, there are many, many people that went through these processes. So we, and some of them are, you know, in long-term training programs, so we can track their development. So we, we know something about it. And since it's also a very young field, we are creating now in the last years the appropriate structure that can also be scientifically evaluated. And so we will gain more and more data and I think we will gain more and more um, backup data for the processes. So it's not just based on, on a felt uh, experience in the room. The other part is also that um, I believe the book talks about the CTIP but another part of the book is also speaking to a phenomenon of the trauma that is often seen as a personal experience is embedded in a whole web of life and that many systems within our society are being affected by trauma without us often being aware that that's what we are affected by. And I think I want to put this just in perspective that the book talks about the history like trauma science and the, and the collective trauma. And then we are also talking in the last chapters about what's the systemic co-creative effect that we see in the healthcare system, in the education system, in, in, in many other systems. And so I see this as an, as an equal contribution of the book to spark a conversation about uh, the necessity to think trauma as a systemic factor and it affects you know structures in our societies it affects how we are able as societies to respond to a covid crisis or a climate crisis so there are many aspects where i think including the dimension of collective trauma when we deal with societal issues for example we see now a massive fragmentation back in the states after the or in relation to the pandemic and the political situation in many countries in Europe, 
and other places in the world, when when there is a collective stress factor like COVID or climate change, the fragmentation in the society is just becoming more obvious. And I think besides the process, that's that's an equally important um, part of the book to yeah. to point towards that as an invitation for a conversation. Certainly, you make many comments on that and very interesting. And perhaps I'm aware of the time, Thomas, that we're now at the end of our time together. Thank you, by the way, for being so generous with your time. So maybe I'll finish with this. Um, you lay out towards the end of the book your vision for what could a society look like or a world look like if the processes that you describe in the book were able to come to their full flowering, such as you know, the healing of the individual and the collective trauma and so on, and these the ideas that you're setting forth. And you write, higher capacities for distance learning, Precognition and enhanced experiences of connectedness and union will no longer simply be possible, but accessible. The miracles attributed to ancient mystics and religious sages will become a part of the everyday. The bright worlds of fantasy and science fiction will no longer seem illusory, but prophetic. Through integrity, faith and the courage to love, our highest mystery will inevitably be revealed. Our ancient myths and fairy tales have always suggested as much, and deep in our hearts we know it to be true. But this story requires more than the will and courage of a single hero or heroine. It calls out for the intelligent whole, the awakened collective, activated by many voices raised in unison. And that's uh, your part of your vision for what could be in store if these processes are allowed to, to flower, as, as you're uh, suggesting. Well, would you like to comment on that last part, or is that... Yeah, I would like to comment on that, because um, I think that's a kind of a more poetic description of something we could say, in other words, that if, if trauma is at the base of separation, and if when we are in, the, in an internal trauma fragmentation, we see ourselves and the world as separate. You know, and the, um, and the wisdom traditions and all the, you know, compassion-based and, and contemplation-based traditions talk about uh, like a deeper state of unification. But that deeper state of unification is not just like a higher state that we attain. It's also like a deeper restorative state that will help us to transcend certain levels of, of separation because they are basically trauma cracks. So it's like I take a stone and I throw it at a window and then I see the cracks and the glass. And, and so we are looking through that kind of glass when we are looking through unconscious trauma. So there's othering, there's fragmentation, there's racism, there are many social issues that we produce out of looking through that unconscious trauma. And not only how does it affect our perception, but it affects the way we act and the way we treat each other and the way we create an environment in the world that uh, provides for much more equality and for much more flourishing for many people, not just super privileged people. And, and I think that that kind of poetic description is also in, in, in let's say, um, more scientific ways that, the, that at the base of separation is not just a, first of all, it's not just a spiritual thing. It's, it's a very alive stuff in our nervous system. And the second aspect is also that it's, um, 
that I believe when we heal PTSD or complex PTSD and we slowly go deeper and or when we when we collectively start to heal some of the massive fragmentations that for example racism created or like a holocaust created or a Rwandan genocide created so when those fragmentations start to heal or integrate we we always come to kind of a deep ethical question like the question the unconsciousness that led to those choices to do those things uh, like becomes evident again and i think there is something about the ethical learning or the ethical line of intelligence as ken river calls it like our our kind of ethical alignment is deeply asked for when we go deeper with the trauma integration and i believe only when so that there's integration of ptsd and everything that's connected to it but deeper down there's also an ethical restoration needed and i think that's where the way we live and that's where the wisdom traditions come together that unification is not just a far out thing it's also a very grounded down to earth thing that that stems from our ethical choices Thomas, I would love to quiz you further about a CTIP process. Uh, it's really interesting, but I'm afraid I think we're out of time now. Thank you for being so generous with your time and for coming on here to discuss your new book, Healing Collective Trauma, available now, sounds true. And perhaps uh, where's the best place for people to find you and to find the results of the outcomes research that you're doing and so on? Yeah, so one is like uh, thomashubel.com, Hubel with H-U-E-B-L thomasubel.com one word and the other one is the pocketproject.org pocketproject.org it's our NGO that's where we do and that's also who everybody everybody who is interested can you know sign up for a newsletter or get get much more information we're publishing our new website there will be a study room that's our meta learning platform and there we'll publish all the new insights and all the new results will be published there Fascinating. I'll include all of that information in the show notes. So Thomas Hubel's book, Healing Collective Trauma, available now from Sounds True. Thomas Hubel, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.